Today, it's all about a focus on history with Pulitzer Prize winner David Hume Kennerly on Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, your host, and this is the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion, all those stories and challenges that happen in between. As always, if you want to see the notes on this particular show or any show for Behind the Shot, head on over to the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. Find the episode that you're interested in, and you'll not only find something I write about my guests in the blog post, but you'll also find a small gallery of their work, including today's guests, which, man, oh, man. I got a guest lined up for you today. If you are a podcast viewer or listener, you can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts in either an audio only format, which all podcast outlets support. Or if your app or outlet supports video, there is a video feed as well, which in some ways does make it a little bit easier. If you are watching on YouTube, and for that matter, if you don't have a podcast app that supports video, head over to Behind the Shot on YouTube. We've got you covered there. Head on down, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell, find any button you got down there, and uh, it'll make it a little easier. In fact, if you would, while you're there, thumbs up, all of that type of stuff. One other thing I want to remind you is the workshop that I'm doing in New Orleans. It's the Wanderer's Photo Workshop. That's been moved to January. If you want any details on the Wanderer's Photo Workshop, head on over to wanderersphoto.com and you can get the dates, you can get the prices, you can get all the details on how that particular workshop is working. It's January 23rd to 27th, 2022. Again, wanderersphoto.com for details. And one last thing before I bring my guest in today. I now have high def video on the podcast, and I want to thank my uh, my my partners in that. They they set me up with high def video. It's DVE Store. You can visit DVE Store at DVEstore.com for all your digital video equipment needs. And that brings me to my guest today. And I, to say that I've been nervous is an understatement because he's a legend. Let's be honest. Pulitzer Prize winning photographer David Hume Kennerly. David, how are you? I'm good. It's Don't nice to nervous. meet you. Well. It is. We've been talking for a long time before we started recording, and I already feel like I know you. Uh, you are. I'm going to use the word legend, which I don't use often, but but your work is in the photojournalistic space at least legendary. You are mostly known, and correct me anywhere I'm wrong here, but you're mostly known for uh, the pictures Vietnam War, uh, your photos from the fight of the century with Ollie being knocked down by Frazier. You photographed every president since Johnson. You were a White House photographer. We'll get into the details on that in a little bit. But I noticed as I read through your bio, there are two quotes on your bio that struck me. Quote number one from Howard Feynman. Kennerly modestly refers to himself as a political photographer, and that's true as far as it goes, but it's like calling Matthew Brady a war photographer or Thomas Eakins a Philadelphia portrait uh, painter. Kennerly is as good as it gets in a craft he defined. I want to touch on that one again in a minute, but this short one I got to throw in here from James Earl Jones, because this, when I read this, I'm like, oh my God, that's it. David Hume Kennerly is like Forrest Gump, except he was really there. I have a question for you. Thinking about those two quotes, thinking about your history, where does one, where does one begin to describe your history of photographing history? <laughs> well, I'm, Howard Feynman and I, by the way, used to work together at Newsweek, and I, I think he overdid it a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't say I've redefined uh like news photography but there's so many great people that came before me uh and i'm not trying to be falsely modest here uh I've, that that may be a little over the top uh however i've always been happy to call myself a wire service photographer that's how i got into the business early newspapers and wires and um so I, I just, uh, from the minute I started looking at uh, big-time players, and Robert Kennedy was the first major league uh, figure that I photographed in 1966 in Portland, Oregon. That night, and meeting Bill Epridge of Life Magazine, uh, who helped me get into the room because it was so crowded, um, which also taught me it's it's better to help other people out than not. And uh, he, he was such a role model for me. Um, 
But then I, I felt like the night I watched Robert Kennedy at this event that I'd reached out and touched the face of history. And it wow. had such a profound effect on me. Uh, I really decided that evening that that's what I wanted to do. And, and particularly when I saw him take off on his airplane and Bill Epridge got on the plane after him. And Bill was a Life magazine photographer. Uh, for those who don't know, he's gone now. But um, the, this moment swept over me where I said, I need to be on that plane. I want to be on that plane metaphorically speaking, uh, to see where that guy's going, what's he doing. And I thought Bill Eppard was so lucky because he was traveling around with this like extraordinary character. And I wanted to do that. And that's what I did. And and you were there the night he was assassinated, correct? Yes. Yeah, because so you've got photos of the ambulance. Angeles. Yeah. Just uh, it's it, so, OK, I, I've got so many ways that I could go with this. You you have you have witnessed through your lens. You've witnessed more history than most people learn in school. Uh, you you won the Pulitzer. And, and am I correct that you were either the youngest at the time or one of the youngest? You were 25 when you won the Pulitzer. Yeah, I'm not sure, but definitely one of the youngest. Uh, uh, the pictures I took. In, when I was 24 and the award came the following year when I was 25. And it and, was Vietnam, uh, Cambodian wars, uh, refugees escaping from East Pakistan to India. And, and again, I mentioned it earlier, the fight of the century, Ali versus Frazier. All yeah, of so those were part of it, right? Yes, yeah, so it, it was my year's work in 1971. And um, the Allie Frazier fight was the last assignment I covered in the States before I went uh, over to Vietnam. And um, I had no idea I was entered for the Pulitzer Prize. Larry DeSantis, who was the picture editor in New York, whom I'd worked with, uh, like every time he saw a picture of mine that he liked, he just threw an eight by 10 of it in his desk drawer and at the end of the year, he, he picked out, I think, 11 or 12 of them and entered them into the Pulitzer. So the first thing I knew about it was when I got a cable in Saigon that I won the Pulitzer. And he I didn't thought, tell you I he was, was sending them? What? He didn't tell you he was sending them? No, he never talked about stuff like that. But wow. it was, um, yeah, that was, it was a no anxiety Pulitzer Prize. I mean, winning a Pulitzer Prize at that point for me was, uh, I, I didn't think about it. It was, wasn't anything I was gunning for. So at 27, two years after the Pulitzer, you end up being named as the White House photographer for uh, Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford. Only the third person, I think, to have had that position. In fact, you're still, correct me if I'm wrong, you're on the board of trustees of the Gerald R. Ford Foundation, right? Yes, and I was the third civilian. In fact, there never was uh, that position during previous to LBJ. Uh, the photographers were military people generally. It's not to say that civilians didn't come in and do photographs like um, Jacques Lowe, Stan Tredek, like people would come in and uh, had a good relationship with JFK who knew that he came across really well in photographs. He used right. that uh, as he should have. Uh, he had the beautiful wife, the cute kids, you know, the whole package. And so, um, and I never saw him. Uh, but um, LBJ, when LBJ took over, uh, he hired Yochi Okamoto, who was a USIA photographer, United States Information Agency. Uh, who had traveled with LBJ on a couple overseas trips, and he really liked his pictures and uh, this documentary style. And Oki, uh, to this day, remains, in my estimation, as the gold standard of, of presidential photography. He he was fantastic. Uh, his uh, When you look at his contact sheets, which is how you should look at people's work, or at least their take uh, digitally or however now, but... Um, it, it was like reading an original score of a Mozart piece. I mean, the, the work is so brilliant, and uh, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to 
uh, the way he shot something. And, and uh, I was fortunate enough to go through his archive down at uh, UT or down at UT Austin uh, LBJ Library. And uh, I was blown away by what I saw. And I knew he was good, but I didn't know he was that good. I've got to I've got to take a detour here because you said something that is sticking in my head. You should you should look at a photographer's contact sheet. That's how you should judge the quality of a photographer. Right. Explain that to me. Why Why do you say that? Well, when I do uh, and I, I, I basically don't like doing portfolio reviews because what you're looking at is the best work that somebody's got in their estimation you have no idea what their thought process was to get to that photograph. I mean, I know we're going to be talking about a picture uh, later that I shot. And, and there's, for the most part, there's always a thought process. Uh, like, how do you attack a subject? Um, right. And that's right. everything from covering a riot to like doing a portrait session or whatever. And so the best advice I could give people, the best criticism or help uh, is if I look at their whole take, everything. Like in the case of a contact sheet, that's how we did it before digital, obviously. So I could see, you could kind of, you could see what's going on in somebody's mind through a contact sheet and you can't in a, in a perfect print. I mean, they right. got it's this your, good picture seeing... or not good picture. I mean, generally if they have a really good shot, I mean, there's not a hell of a lot to say about it. Uh, but but if, if they didn't quite get there, I have no idea how to help them out unless I see the other pictures that they did. I love that. And really what you're talking about is is not critiquing the, you know, selectively handpicked crop, you know, cream of the crop. It's it's looking at the process, which is the whole point of this show. I mean, that's why I do the show. Exactly. I'm fascinated exactly. by the process. Yes. And I, I think... Um, I think your premise for the show is really good because uh, in, in everybody, I mean, of course, uh, as a news photographer, which I principally am, but uh, uh, you go out and, but even in the middle of a world of shit where stuff is going on, you still have to be particularly have to think about how am I doing this? How am I, what am I looking for? Right. What am I seeing? Am I, am I going to tell the story? Sometimes you can do it with one picture. Sometimes you can't do it at all because it uh, just didn't work out. But there's always a thought process to it. And even though I've been doing it for a long time, and, would, you know, my wife, uh, Rebecca, said uh, she pushed me into writing this David Hume Kennerly on the iPhone book because it wasn't about iPhone pictures. It was about my thought process, my, my thought process and how I approached a picture. Right. And I did, I said, well, I just, I really don't have that much to talk about. She said, that's BS. I said, you think about everything you do all the time. And so she kind of like, like whacked me into doing that book. And it turned out to be pretty good in terms of explaining how I went about it. And it just happened. It's the iPhone uh, or mobile phone. Like everybody's got one, but it's still a camera. So the, the process is still there. It doesn't matter what you're shooting with. Well, and, and arguably because the phone is so one click and you're done, it removed the gear and the technology out of it and let you focus on on that process and, and your thought. You, you commented that, you know, one, you know, one good photo, there may not be something to, to talk about if it tells the story. You have a photo. You actually have two photos from your days in the White House with President Ford. Uh, President Ford in an empty Oval Office because of how you know Nixon left office, Ford came in, they'd taken Nixon's belongings out of the Oval Office but hadn't had time to bring. When you see him sitting at, at the desk, the Resolute desk with his feet up, the, the shelves bare, completely empty. That, in a way... Like we've all studied that. We all know what happened, right? But that photo of yours, that one singular frozen moment in time, put a focus on a on a historical moment to me when I saw that photo. And it's the same with Betty Ford dancing on the cabinet room table. That was that was that's the cabinet room table and the first lady. 
And yet, in a, in a way, it it defined a time in history. So I, I, I have a question related to, like I, what I said earlier, you've seen so much historically wise, uh, journalistically wise. Did you know at the ages that you were 25, 27, 28, 29, whatever, did you understand the importance of the history you were documenting? Because most 28-year-olds don't even care about politics, for example. Well, I mean, I cared about history. And, um, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I, number one, I was not a very good student. I, I, I basically wanted to be out taking pictures since I was probably 12 years old. And, um, uh, but I, history was always my favorite subject. And, uh, so I, I cared about that. And I, I, I loved reading biographies of uh, important figures um, uh, or autobiographies, both. Right. both. But, um, you know, for instance, uh, the picture you mentioned in the Oval Office, uh, President Foote's two days after he became president, I was one of his first appointments uh, uh, as a White House staffer. Um, but what it, that picture shows a lot of things. There's a lot of information there, yes. <clears throat> not just in the frame. I mean, it shows that if you step back and think, wow, this kid, this guy, this young guy is like right there by the president's desk alone in the Oval Office. And he's got his foot up on the desk. He's on the phone. Um, and then, as you pointed out, in, in the background was uh, were all – all these empty shelves in the Oval Office uh, that had had the Nixon stuff on it because that the transition was so hasty, right? Uh, that that's what happened, and that was one way to tell the story. And I, I of course, one of the reasons I remember this is because of it was kind of shocking. I walked in there, I go, "Oh my God, all all the stuff is gone," you know. And and I'd been in that Oval Office probably a week earlier photographing Nixon, you know, so I knew. So that was a way of telling the story, the, the transition, bang, bang, it happened real fast. It also showed the president, new president, with his foot up on the desk. So he's kind of relaxed. And so he's not up. Yes. About it. So that, that, that struck me, by the way, it, it, that, that struck me because it showed the again, you used all these standard compositional things. You layered the image with the bookshelves, the president. But but the moment you captured with the feet up on the desk showed, even with that hasty transition, he was comfortable in his shoes, for lack of a better phrase. Definitely comfortable in his skin. And I, I think one of the reasons I got along with him so well, and I met him, I photographed uh, uh, Spiro Agnew, the vice president who resigned under Nixon, and then there were several people in contention for that job to replace him. I mean, that's what Washington's like. Somebody dies, somebody gets fired. It's not like, Oh, too bad. It's like, who's going to, who's next. Right. That's all I care about. You know I mean? It's, it's true. Oh, so sorry. Who's going to be the, the next person in the job. And so I, it just happened that Ford was one of the people who was on the list, obviously, but we had no idea. And I got an appointment to photograph him. And that was my first time cover and his first time cover. And then I ended up covering him as vice president. So I got to know him. And I am i was a little bit older than his oldest kid by maybe two or three years of that, you know. And, uh, and so, um, but I, it wasn't like he was dad to me. I mean, uh, my, I had a dad who's 13 right. years younger than he was. And, uh, uh, but I, I still... When I got the job, I, I the night he became president, he asked me if I would be interested in, in having the White House job. He'd never brought it up before. He didn't bring that up with anybody. He didn't want to appear to be pushing Nixon out. And we're sitting at his house over in Alexandria that night. He'd been president of the United States for like eight or nine hours, probably. And I was one of the people, uh, I was there taking pictures at the house. And they didn't move into the White House, by the way, for 10 days because of that hasty uh, right. um, transition. And 
I said I would be interested in the job if you gave me total access to everything going on in the White House and that I reported directly to you. Now, I'm sitting there talking to the president of the United States. I'm from Roseburg, Oregon, the timber capital of the nation. My dad was a traveling salesman. I have no connections in politics. I think daddy didn't get me this job. You know, he wasn't right. a big donor to the Republican Party. And um, uh, and he was kind of taken aback on one end, but we knew each other well enough. He was a combat veteran of World War II and, you know, me with Vietnam. And, and I just couldn't not say that because the person before me, after Okamoto had been Nixon's photographer, the second official White House photographer, I uh, had very little access to Nixon, and I did not want to be outside the Oval Office with some secretary telling me I could come in or not. I needed to be able to come and go upstairs, downstairs at the White House, and he agreed to it. He agreed, and uh, and and that's how I got the job. And he always appreciated my honesty, and that was one of the reasons we got along. And um, it says but, a lot about him too, though. It says a lot about uh, his it it about his again his comfort in it you mentioned the 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 first magazine cover you've had over 50 major magazine covers you photographed 10 u.s presidents from johnson to biden 13 u.s campaigns uh you were a contributing editor for newsweek contributing photographer for time life i love these two these two uh notes in in your your history american photo magazine named you one of the hundred most important people in photography I 100% agree. I would have said not one of the 100 most. I would have said one of the top 10. Uh, Washingtonian Magazine called you one of the 50 most important journalists in D.C. So, again, you've got this storied career. By the way, folks, go look up the TED Talk uh, that that uh, David did, TEDx Bend, because the title of your TED Talk alone is awesome to me. Telling the story in 1 60th of a second. <laughs> that that kind of sums it up. And I just want to, before we get into the picture, and folks, trust me, we'll get into the picture and it's it you're gonna <laughs> love it. But I'm I'm having too much fun here. In 2019, the University of Arizona Center for Creative Photography, they acquired the David Hume Kennerly Archive. Now, when we're talking about the David Hume Kennerly Archive, we're talking almost a million images, prints, memorabilia documents, correspondence. They even appointed you their first presidential scholar. When you look back at what you have in in the world of photography in general, and specifically this this you know newer thing starting in 2019 with the University of Arizona, do you have any thoughts on the state of photojournalism, specifically the the photography side of photojournalism educationally? where we're at education-wise? Where we're at education-wise. With photography with and journalism? School, the, yeah. Yeah, I never went to school for this. Uh, uh, I. It's kind of ironic that I'm a presidential scholar, but on the other hand, I am a student of history. Of, uh, you know, it's like street history. It's not, you know, classroom history. And uh, actually, one of my my youngest son is a um, Chinese literature scholar at University of Chicago working on a Ph.D. He's 23 years old. Now, he's a real student. And uh, my middle son, uh, Nick, is a concert violinist who learned it at school, USC. And my oldest son is a a traveling comedian uh, who writes funny blogs around the world. And uh, he went to uh, Virginia Tech for some inexplicable reason as a Californian, but it was a it was a great a great experience. But I'm not an academic person. I mean, I from the minute I could get a job and to shoot, it was like I wanted to be right in the middle of of history to show other people things they didn't want to see. In many cases, or definitely to go places other people didn't want to go. You, and, that, that, um, that's a really good point, by the way. I think that when, when you look at your when you look at your war photography, you brought home to people 
things that they may not have wanted to see, but needed to see. And you took that skill set from the war and you applied it to, I think, everything that I've seen in your work. You even photographed the Rolling Stones, which we were talking about before we started recording. (laughs) I mean, you, 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 sir, have done so much. And one of the things that I love is that you are prolific in sharing that knowledge. You've got uh, a number of books. You mentioned the iPhone book, which is David Hume Kennerly on the iPhone. I didn't know about this one, and I'm a huge fan of the show. Sign off the final days of Seinfeld. I need to go find that book. I need to check that out. Um, you've been an executive producer. You've been nominated for a primetime Emmy, and you even helped write a show about your Vietnam experience, a pilot for a show. Um, All of that brings you, to me, to the top of the pack of what you photograph. And I think today's image, I think today's image really, to me, kind of sums up Uh, what you have accomplished. So before I get into the shot, let me just remind everybody, if you want to see a small gallery of David's work, head on over to the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. If you want to read a small bit that I wrote about David, uh, head on over to the website as well, behindtheshot.tv, and there's the small gallery in there. And the shot we're going to talk about today is five presidents at the Reagan Library dedication in 1991. I, when, when you and I were picking a photo, I had seen this photo before many, many times. And what I didn't know at the time until I started researching the the history of this particular photo, this was not the only time you've shot five presidents. There's been, to my knowledge, twice, the five living presidents together in one photograph, and they're both yours, correct? More. Uh, there was this one. This well, this one was the first time five presidents had ever been in one spot. I prefer to say photograph, not shot, uh, when we're dealing with presidents. Yeah, so, uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sorry about that. So, I mean, that's how we talk, obviously. Uh, the uh, uh, so this is the first time, and I, the second time uh, was. 9-11, I think. And then there was Reagan's funeral. And the, the, the two different uh, uh, events at the Washington Cathedral. And then there was uh, the uh, Nixon's funeral. Actually, would have been the, probably the second time, actually. Uh, that was uh, a year after uh, 1994. It was three years after this. And they uh, Bill Clinton was president, and they were all sitting together with their wives between them. But there was never a five presidents moment like this. Right. And um, and then the closest to this, which is also one I like a lot, is uh, uh, Barack Obama as president-elect. There it is. Yeah, in the Oval Office. And um, uh, George W. Bush is the president. He's leaning over to Obama here saying, Hey, there's Dave Kennerly. You know Dave Kennerly? <laughs> Obama had no idea about who I was. And uh, I didn't cover his campaign. I didn't know him from Adam. And uh, he, But he's smiling because that's what you do when you're a politician. But that was a good setup. You had all the old man Bush. And then uh, on the far end there, you had Clinton and Carter. So those, those two, the one we're going to talk about today and that, and that one are the best ones, but there were, I guess, five occasions, and, and there have been six occasions, and I didn't do one, and that, I think it was the dedication of the uh, w. George W. Bush Library, I think. I, I didn't go down for that. Well, this, but, this, this shot for today, uh, for those of you on the audio, I'm going to try and describe this for you verbally, and my suggestion is either go to David's website or head on over to the blog post at BehindTheShot.tv because then you'll have the opportunity to actually see what I'm talking about. But this is five presidents starting at the left. It's George Bush, then uh, President Reagan, President Carter, President Ford, and President Nixon. It's a black and white photo, 1991, clearly film. It's uh, outdoors, trees behind them. They And here's what I love about this. I'm curious. You need to tell me if this was... 
I almost feel like somebody yelled something out to make him look. The five of them are standing at 45 degrees to the camera. They're facing camera left at 45 degrees, except Reagan, whose library dedication it is, he's looking right at David. Like, of all five of them, the one guy whose special event this is, is looking at you. Was there a reason for that? Did that well, happen no, spontaneously? Nobody. So backing up here, um, they're facing the rest of the photographers. Everybody else is like head on to them. And I knew exactly what was going to be happening in this uh, situation because I got a, a phone call from uh, uh, President Bush's uh, HW, uh, well, he's only Bush in this photo, George Bush, um, who is the president uh, at this moment. And, um, and one of the advanced people from uh, whom I knew, he said, we, we want to make this great five presidents picture. It's the first time it's ever happened. It's Reagan's library. And when you look at the picture, you see President Bush on the left and then uh, Ronald Reagan next to him. And he had been Reagan's VP for eight years. Reagan was staying next to Carter, whom he beat. Carter staying next to Ford, whom he beat. And Ford staying next to Nixon, uh, who he replaced, uh, the first and only president uh, to resign. So at, at this moment, these were the first five minus uh, LBJ I'd photographed at one event when he was out of office. That was it. But th this is basically my presidential uh, array. But I went out the day before at their request. Uh, they wanted to just consult with me on what might make a good picture. And I'm thinking, well, okay, uh, we'll definitely want to get them a good picture. And so we came up with this scenario. I had some input where they come walking out of the library and then they come out and the library is behind them and they stand in this one spot and they will pose. And, and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, this is like the, this is the shot, the money shot really, except I think they're going to look like cardboard cutouts there. They got light on them and everything else. And, that, and so I chose to go off to the side and it, what essentially would be like a, a Mount Rushmore kind of moment. That's uh, what we refer to it in the business. And I was going to take a chance on getting something that was different from everybody else. All the wires, everybody were right head on. That's where you've got to be. Uh, and I, I was just doing it for me. I did. I, this was not on assignment for anybody. And so I'm off to the side of Daryl Hykus, who was uh, a U.S. News and World Report photographer. He and I had worked at UPI, saw me over on the side. And Daryl is a really good photographer. And uh, so he came over. <laughs> I mean, he knew I wasn't over there just for the hell of it. You know, that I, I had something up my sleeve. And so he came over which is fine. I mean, Daryl and I were good buddies and we're taking their pictures and they're all looking the other way. And then Reagan, who's like a, like a master poser, I guess he's an actor. He knows where the cameras are. He basically, I'm thinking, I never talked to him about it, but he saw me whom he knew and uh, uh, hike is over on the side. And that's when he looked over at us and that made the shot. It and, makes. Uh, oh, I it, never yelled at him or anything. It was. Uh, I don't do that. Uh, but, Hundred percent um, made the shot, and you brought up a key point. By the way, this is the line of succession, and in some ways, when I first see this, the same line of succession could have been taken. Like if you're taking it straight on, okay, they're still in the line of succession, but the staggered forty-five degree angle here emphasizes it. The fact that you're on the side with Nixon going first, they would have been in an order no matter what, but you get, my, my first thought when I see this picture, when I saw this picture was, I wonder what it was like for Nixon that day, right? I wonder he's standing next to the guy who succeeded him after he resigned the presidency. Only time that's been done. He's there with the next four presidents after him. I, I, I see this, him being first, him being effectively, you know, the most prominent in the frame in some ways. 
Um, and, and I just wonder what it was like, what was in his head. Plus, you get a leading line that's kind of unusual in that he's looking, because they're staggered, he's looking at Ford. Ford is effectively, on a, on a singular plane, looking from behind Carter, who's then looking to, to <laughs> Reagan. If there's There are so many things that jump out in this shot to me. Uh, obviously, this was shot on film. Um, when... When you're, let's take it to the technical level for a minute. You see everybody else shooting straight on. David being the smart one in the bunch decides, I'm just going to be another stock photo at that point. Let's make something out of this. You'd go to the side. What is in your mind as you're exposing for this, knowing, like you said, it's the money shot. You need to be able to capture this photograph what are you thinking about exposure wise? And I guess another question is, do you think differently now that we're on digital? Would no. you have thought differently? No, no. I taking mean, that's this? a good Right. I mean, that's a good question. I would have done the same thing. Digital doesn't make any difference. I mean, it's, it's the way you see things. That's the whole point of what we do. Uh, we don't get paid as professionals um, just because we know how to take pictures, we get paid for our point of view. Right. And, uh, and everybody expects their, the pictures are going to be good. I mean, why would you hire somebody otherwise? And um, uh, I mean, I get paid like not to miss the shot. And like, uh, in particular, when it comes to history, it, it, my history with these guys was I knew every single one of them. I'd talked to every single one of them. Uh, uh, the first president I'd covered in office was uh, Richard Nixon. And, um, and not that I got to know him very well, but I did have, you know, there were uh, two occasions. One where I actually talked to the guy. I mean, he was not real press friendly. <laughs> But and then Gerald Ford, of course, I knew really well. And Carter, I got to know, uh, and I talked to him uh, when he was president. I went in there a couple times for Time Magazine and photographed him. And Reagan, I mean, Reagan knew who I was. I mean, or at least he 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 covered for it really well. He had a hard time remembering people's names, and uh, but he covered for it so well. Hey, how are you? You know, like. Oh yeah, he knows me. <laughs> no, so <laughs> so, and I don't recall any major conversation with Ronald Reagan, and uh, uh, but he was always great to photograph because he, you know, he was like knew how to uh, uh, kind of do the role. And then uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, I, I knew probably best of, of all of them. It was Ford and Bush that I knew the best. Ford had uh, picked out, uh, picked George Bush to be his uh, representative to uh, China. Right. And um, uh, it wasn't ambassador, but it was like the first major breakthrough there. Um, and then he became the director of the CIA in 1976. And so, but I always, I always liked George Bush a lot. And uh, so I got to know, but th this represents history. It represents personal relationships for me. Um, and you were asked something earlier about, do I basically understand what I'm looking at? I'll put it in a blunt way. But uh, the answer is for sure. It's up to me to know, not that it would take a rocket science to figure, scientist to figure out what we're looking at here. <laughs> but... I knew a lot about each one of those guys. I mean, in Richard Nixon's uh, case, I was there when he got up on the helicopter to after he resigned the presidency. I was there when Gerald R. Ford uh, was sworn in as president of the United States an hour later in the East Room. I was there when Jimmy Carter was sworn in as president of the United States uh, on January 20th of 1977, after he beat Ford. I was there when Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president. And I was there when George Bush was sworn in as president. And I was there when George Bush lost the presidency uh, to Bill Clinton. And so this represents, uh, in my field, really kind of a, 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 a 
I don't want to say iconic moment, but it was a it was personally important to me. This photograph. You know what's I, I as as you're talking and I'm looking at this photograph, thinking about you know you you made the comment that you're photographing relationships in a way. I mean you you knew these guys from the public side. We knew them based on what we saw in photos like yours, based on what we saw you know on on television, and as I'm looking at it, even the facial expression on each one is exactly the facial expression I would expect to see on each one. Jimmy Carter is always smiling. Ronald Reagan has that Hollywood type smile. George Bush was always smiling. President Ford was uh, tended to have a serious face. Um, Nixon smiling is interesting to, to me here. When you're, when you're photographing, most of your career has been, you know, photojournalistic, obviously. When you're photographing, clearly you're aware of, you know, based on the fact you understood, you know, the layers and everything in that in that Gerald Ford in the Oval Office uh, uh, photograph. When you're photographing, is it a mixture in your head of thinking composition and story and and other stuff? Is there one primary driving focus when you're looking through a viewfinder, you know, story or composition or do you understand what I mean? Yep. I do. And um, I think all of the above, really. I, I, when I, it kind of depends on how fast something's moving, you know, with the people, the photographers who have to cover the White House. Uh, Doug Mills is a good example, New York Times. Um, he, you're seeing like, events play out in the, in the same places over and over. And so it's kind of hard to stay fresh there. And the difference between a professional photographer and a camera user is that's just, that's just another challenge. You have to try to figure out not how am I going to make this look different, but how am I going to stay engaged with it and, tell, and telling the story? And, um, uh, I mean, Mills is a great example of part of what he does. He puts remotes around like high, low, uh, sideways. Uh, uh, but he, he's still going for the story, but he's, he's trying to be imaginative about it. And, uh, but without taking his eye or like my eye when I'm shooting off of uh, what is the story I'm trying to tell? I mean, one minute, the, President's behind the Oval Office desk, and um, he has to deal with a, a war, or the economy, or this or that. So all this plays out in one spot, and uh, but it's about facial expressions. It's about the tension in the room, and because we're photographers, we don't talk about what we hear. And one of the, the probably the most currency that we have is that, and that's not just me, it's anybody doing this on a regular basis. We don't, we're not, we're, we don't talk about it. Uh, President Ford once said that my tombstone should read, here lies the worst source in Washington. And, and but I'm that way in general with my friends. It's not that, it's not just like, because I'm in the White House and they're talking about secret stuff, you know, that I'm not going to talk about it, anything. Um, in order that you get into the room, you have to be trusted about what uh, you're hearing. It doesn't mean you've got to, that they expect you to take good pictures of them. No, they don't. I mean, it's, and I don't try to make anybody look good, bad, or middle. I mean, that's not what I do. That's not what we do as photographers. I, I'm just trying to tell the story. Uh, you, you have a shot? Of uh, you have a photograph. I'm going to stay with that one. You have a photograph of Ford in his pajamas, uh, in a room, in a serious discussion that I think really sums up what you just said. And that is, you're not there to try and and take a photograph of them at their best or their worst or anything. You're there to take a photograph of that moment in a way that that photograph informs the person viewing the photograph and with as many presidents as you photographed with, with, with not even presidents. I don't want to go president with as much as you photograph from a political side. 
was the was the 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 Trump Biden era. Was it as different as it felt? You were there documenting it. Was it as different from your point of view behind the lens as it felt to those of us on the outside watching? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, so uh, um, really, Evan, I, I did the last um, in 2015 and then 16. I covered the uh, uh, campaign for CNN and I spent time with Hillary. I was with uh, Hillary when in Iowa when she got word that the James James Comey, the FBI director, was going to reopen that investigation into her email. And essentially her bid for the presidency ended that day. And uh, uh, not that anybody knew it, but it was a, a devastating incident. And then I was with Trump election night in New York City at uh, the Trump headquarters at the Hilton Hotel in a ballroom. It was not a big ballroom. It did not appear to be the uh, uh, venue of somebody who expected to win. And it, more like he got a deal on the room because uh, he didn't figure he was going to win the election. He didn't want to spend a lot of money. And there weren't, uh, it wasn't even that crowded. And so it was stunning when he won and I was there. And then a lot of my colleagues said, how did you know? And I said, what do you mean? How did I know? He said, well, you don't like hanging out with losers. So how did you know he was going to lose? I said, I didn't know. I mean, I, he didn't know. Nobody knew. And uh, I suspected a, a day earlier that that might happen because I'd been out with Hillary and with Trump. And so I, I had a, Kind of a different sense of it and i've done so many of these campaigns however who knew you know and and uh the rest is history as they say the biden picture that one was in um february of 2020 uh, uh, new hampshire primary and it, it, this is a great example though of, of, of how a photograph could tell a story even if it's of somebody's face this is joe biden talking about his son Bo, whom had uh, died of cancer and it was a real reflective moment. This is a small town hall meeting in uh, uh, New Hampton, New Hampshire. And I feel it here. I feel it. I, I, and and uh, Joe Biden, whether you like him or not, uh, is an empathetic character. Uh, right. People would come up to him. He would talk to people at these events afterwards and, and um people would pour their hearts out to him how they'd lost a kid or some tragedy had happened to him. And he listened to them. He listened. He wasn't just blah, 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 you know, talking. And um, uh, I was really impressed with that. I was never a huge fan of his, uh, uh, which doesn't make any difference. Uh, but I have become so because he's like a real human being. Right. And, which uh, is rare in D.C., it's not rare, but it's like, how how do people, you know, do those jobs and, and not have some humanity? We're seeing a lot of that now. And uh, uh, a good example is Liz Cheney. I've known Liz since she was eight years old. And uh, she and I are very close friends. She's, uh, as you know, really conservative, but of the old-fashioned variety. Uh, but she has guts and integrity. And so keeping her job is not the most important thing to her. Being able right. to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, you know what? Uh, I wouldn't do anything differently. And she has her own beliefs about politics. I mean, uh, whether, again, whether I agree with her or not, doesn't matter. But what I do know and uh, the pictures of her, and I've spent time with her since all this stuff has been happening, um, that she's a strong-willed, honest person, and, and I, I, I wish that the Washington was filled with her kind of people. And, you know, everybody has a different point of view, and I've hung out with liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans, and I've seen everything that's been going on. Uh, I've watched 
the best of people, the relationship between Gerald R. Ford and Tip O'Neill, who was uh, uh, House speaker Majority of the House. Leader, and then he became Speaker. Yep. Uh, Ronald Reagan and O'Neill, uh, together they worked on uh, revamping the social security system, and, and nobody got everything they wanted, but they did it civilly. I never, like those guys would kick each other around during the week and then play golf on the weekends. Never got personal. It wasn't like, you know, inner Newt Gingrich in 1995, and <clears throat> which really kind of lit the fuse on, uh, on on bad feelings and bad behavior in Washington. I mean, not that a lot of Democrats have been a party to that, certainly. Right. But um, I saw it happen. I've watched it happen. And I, I was in the room when Newt Gingrich was talking, when he was speaker, talking to uh, President Clinton and just berating the guy. It was a private meeting. I was allowed in there. I was in Bob Dole's office. And it was shocking to me. It was shocking. And um, uh, Bob Dole is another one, by the way, who when you when you talk about politicians, we're going down a, a rabbit hole here that I love when when you talk about politicians. And, and it's kind of like what you said, when you go into the Oval Office, you have to have had that character that they know you're not going to share those things that are secret or private or whatever before you get in there. Right. And that's really what you're talking about is a level of character. And Bob Dole is another one of those that I used to watch, you know, growing up and you'd, you'd see politicians disagree. But a, another good example, actually, is when somebody said something at a John McCain rally about Obama and McCain came out in his defense at that moment. Well, right. This woman <clears throat> said that he wasn't an American, uh, uh, paraphrasing. Right. And but she believed that, you know, this is one of the most disturbing things about what's going on now is people believe bullshit. Right. They believe it. Yeah. And and it's it's astonishing to me that some of the things that people believe and it's all, you know, comes from the top and all that. No, McCain, I knew really well. In fact, the family asked me and I did. Uh, I was uh, I, I photographed his funeral for the family. And uh, and John McCain and I got along great. He was a cranky guy. He was irascible. He could be difficult, but he was honest as the day is long. And uh, I, I respect that more than anything. I work with people all the time with different political points of view, and I'm I'm registered in California as a no political party. I mean, I vote for people because I think they're good for the job or what. You know, I'm a I, I vote, I participate in the system, but it doesn't have anything to do with my job of, of uh, photographing people. I mean, so, even Donald Trump, I didn't go out of my way to make Donald Trump look bad. I mean, uh, the, I mean, he did a fine job of that all on his own with the things that he was saying. <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to be a party to that. But the, um, um, no, our job is not to, uh, to, decide who's right or wrong uh, in our work, but just to try to, to tell the story. And that sounds pretty high-minded. And, and I don't believe people are objective. I mean, I don't think that's how we're wired. But you kind of overcome uh, personal thoughts sometimes in order to, to, to do the best you can to, to tell the story. So let me get into a speed round here. And on these questions, Whatever comes to your mind, just go with the answer. So question number one, if you were to give one tip to aspiring photojournalists, what would it be? Go out there and <clears throat> shoot as many pictures as you can. Look at everything from every angle, uh, from the top, from the bottom, from the side. Uh, but mainly think about what you're doing. It's not a mindless act. And you need to wow, yeah. have a reason to do something before you take the picture. And I was trained as a, a news photographer to think about what I'm looking at, because then we didn't have, you know, you, you didn't have like a never ending supply of uh, uh, digital frames, you know, and, and even before that, learning on a speed graphic, one shot, Joe Rosenthal raising the flag of, on Iwo Jima, one frame. 
And somebody, uh, they, I get asked all the time, how many pictures does it take to get a good one? One, one, that's it. I like that. I like that. I mean, and it's you not, might have and it's a thousand not... frames <laughs> to get there, but generally well, but, not, a, not us. I would argue one of the greatest things I've ever heard is it's not a mindless act. Don't just spray and pray. Look through the viewfinder. I always treat the viewfinder as though I am a, a you know, in a different position because obviously the viewfinder restricts what I see. If I pull away, I see something differently. Look through the viewfinder and realize what it is you're looking at when you do it. What is your favorite compositional rule or do you have none? Foreground. <laughs> okay. Incorporating foreground, uh, whether it's a shadow whether it's just a point of view of somebody or, and that doesn't mean every time, but my, I think compositionally, and when it comes to cropping photos later and all that, I mean, I'm a real stickler for it because you rarely get a picture you want uh, exactly the way you want it through the viewfinder. It just doesn't work out like that. And cropping is good. I mean, that that's part of, what the business is not to change the intent of what the picture was or to mislead somebody. Not, I don't mean it that way, but you know, you go in a little tighter or whatever it's. um, But foreground is always uh, an important element in a picture. I've said this before. I've had people or I know of people who, who say, you know, I never, you know, I never crop. And it's like a badge of honor. And, and what I always say to people is, yes, you do. You have a bunch you of chose a 24 over a, you chose a 24 over an 85. You changed your crop. You took one step forward or one step back. You changed your crop. Whether you're yeah. cropping through the lens or whether you're cropping in post, you are deciding what to leave, what you are deciding, arguably, most importantly, what not to include in your story. That's as much exactly as you are right. what is in the story. No, no, that's true. That's true. I, it's absolutely true. If somebody says I don't crop. I mean, I have suddenly lost interest in that person as a photographer because I, I don't. It's not true, like you're saying. It's not true. Maybe you're, and also if you if you are shooting pictures, and turning stuff into a client, and you have like uh, something like a car on the left-hand side of the frame that has nothing to do with what you're shooting. You tell me you're not going to take that out. You know, I mean, that doesn't make sense. And so that's kind of a stupid thing to say just because it, it doesn't make sense to me. My, my favorite one is the number of pictures I see that are street photography, but they leave and there's, there is area to, to crop and not be too tight and tell the story and leave some open space or breathing nose room, whatever you want to call it, but they'll leave half a person in there. It's like, no, you're killing me. Um, what's your favorite drink? My favorite drink? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I just came up with a new one. Um, <laughs> okay. I'll give you the recipe. It, 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 unfortunately, a couple of people have been drinking them, and, and, and then they got the, uh, hooked on And so I take Icelandic vodka. It's called Rake. Are you, uh, why? Like Reykjavik, yeah. Okay. Like Reykjavik, yeah, Reyk. And um, on the rocks, and I take these little uh, uh, round, small round tomatoes, I quarter them and put them in. And uh, uh, and then I take a teaspoon of uh, onion juice, like uh, the, the pickled onions, the uh, cocktail onions, and one cocktail onion. And then... Um, you pour the rake over it after the onions are in it. And then I sprinkle it with this. It's a kind of pepper called, uh, um, oh, I can't think of the name of it, but I, a little bit of this spicy pepper on it. And it it's not like a Bloody Mary because there's no tomato juice in it. But it's become a huge hit among my friends, this drink. <laughs> I'm making that for my wife tonight. It's okay, a good it's a one. Deal. It's a good one. <laughs> okay. Favorite singer, band, or album? Man, it's hard to beat the Rolling Stones. Uh, and, and circling back to them, <clears throat> Mike Barnacle, the columnist, uh, who's a friend of mine, wrote a column about Mick Jagger and called him the greatest athlete in history. And he got a note from Jagger that said, thank you for noticing. 
Well, I and remember the guy's the, still at it. He's still he's still jumping up in the air. And I remember the Steel Wheels tour when it was at the Coliseum, and I mean one of the largest stage sets I have ever seen in my life. And he ran from one side to the other the entire. It's amazing. Yeah, it uh, makes point. And it, but you can't it, because I saw him when I was 19 years old. Photographed him. Uh, it was their actually second U.S. tour. The first one was like 10 days in 1964. Mainly they were doing TV shows, but their first big tour was 66. It was Portland, Oregon, and I was working nights. I am hard pressed to to beat them, even though it, it definitely dates me. But it's also a, a personal thing. There, it doesn't date you. The, the Rolling Stones are timeless. Still and gen- the, they have seats. I looked online. Like, if you really want a great seat up front, you could pay 10 grand for a yeah. seat. I mean, it's astonishing. And I remember that Rolling Stone concert. I think the seats were five bucks a piece or something. And it was incredible. Uh, what is on still? Because this list could be completely checked off at this point. But if there were a, a David Hume Kennerly photographic bucket list is there anything still on it yes yes i i think uh you know, I'm, I'm stealing this one because a friend of mine said what's your favorite picture he said i haven't taken it yet and uh, that's not my line but in a way that's true i'm still shooting i'm i'm still in the game um if if i can pick one i would okay. like to spend a day with kim jong-un in north korea Ooh, that would be an interesting one. Okay. The question and is, when I come back after that, I don't know. But it's like- <laughs> If you get the shot, though, that's what matters. I could get the shot. I don't know. So, last question. Is there a photographer that people may not know enough about that deserves a shout-out? Who's a photographer you think more people should know about? Oh, that, that's an easy question for me. The best photographer on the planet today is Carol Guzzi. And Carol is a four-time Pulitzer Prize winner. There have only been five people in history of won four, and one of them was Robert Frost, and one of them was Eugene O'Neill. She's the only woman and the only photographer. And But it's not even just that. It's that Carol Guzzi is someone who takes everything in that she shoots. And she's been in the earthquakes of Haiti and uh, Sierra Leone and Syria recently was back down in Haiti. And so she has suffered psychologically, but she's still at it. And uh, hands down, Carol Guzzi, look her up. You'll be astonished. And you are the, I think, third guest. Uh, Estra Suarez mentioned Carol Guzzi. Trying to remember who else it was. It might have been Blair Bunting or it might have been William Snyder. Somebody else m- mentioned Carol Guzzi too. And again, all the links, everything we're talking about. In fact, I'm going to transcribe the drink recipe. That will be in the show notes too. Oh, good. That, oh, good. That's going to get added too. And so, I'll get, oh, by the way, I'll get you the exact name. There's a certain kind of pepper. I just I can't think of the exact name. Awesome. I awesome. Because that's got to be in there. No, uh, no, it's important. Yeah. David, uh, thank you so much for doing this. If people want to find you, uh, you're obviously your website. And if you're watching the video, folks, lower thirds pop up under the guests so that you can see, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and 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 website. But David, if people want to find you, those that are on audio that haven't seen that, what is your website? Uh, Kennerly.com. K-E-N-N-E-R-L-Y.com. And Instagram, David Hume Kennerly. Twitter, Kennerly. Uh, Facebook, David Kennerly. So we're all related. Yeah, it's all family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, David Hume Kennerly, it is, again, an honor to meet you. And uh, you taking the time to do this means a ton to me. Thank you so very much. Yeah, well, it was a great talk. Thank you. And to everybody, make sure you head over to the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. You'll find a little blurb that I wrote about David. You'll find the links that I talk about, his photographer pick, uh, 
ways to contact him or connect with him online. The drink recipe will be in there as well. And it's at BehindTheShot.tv. Just find this episode. There's a small gallery of David's work there as well. However, I do recommend that you go to uh, Kennerly.com, go to his website, make sure that you go to the, uh, the galleries and find the greatest hits and just scroll through. I will warn you, you will lose an hour or two like I did. You'll, you won't be able to stop. You'll just end up staying there. It's absolutely that good. If you want to reach out to me, of course, you can do it online at Steve Brazel or at Behind the Shot TV. Uh, the website, of course, for me is stevebrazel.com. It's like Brazil, but two L's or behindtheshot.tv. And please reach out to me anytime. Don't forget that we do the uh, critique shows as well. We do those once a month. And I think this is going to air the day before it. But if not, go look it up whenever you end up watching this. Uh, the next critique show, usually the critique shows are aired on my YouTube channel only. They don't go in the podcast feed. I do them with Don Komarechka and we have a guest panelist come on and we go through nine images. Well, we do the image selections through Flickr and Flickr and SmugMug reached out and said, why don't you do one of the shows on our stream for SmugMug Live? So Friday, October 8th, we are streaming my critique show through SmugMug Live and it's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope that you'll join us there. Uh, for everybody, thank you so much for all the support. If you're on YouTube, please make sure you hit, head down, hit the subscribe button, click the bell. And if you would, wherever you get your podcasts, if you drop us a star rating, five stars would be great. If you don't think it's five stars, reach out to me and let me know why. I'm always willing to hear what you have to say. And if you drop a review, that helps as well. Hope you'll join us on the next show when we try and get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. Music.